I want to uh, share a passage with you, with you. Please go to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, it's uh, sometimes a bit of a controversial passage. It's to me a, an incredibly beautiful, uh, glorious passage. Uh, we're going to be talking about the kenosis of Christ. Uh, and it's just, when you look at this passage, the first 11 verses or so, it's really mind-boggling when you realize what's being said there. And it's actually a disputed passage. It's a very misused passage. But Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, if there be any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being made or being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in, the, in spirit, intent on one person or one purpose. He's calling for Christian unity. And then he knows that they're just not going to come together and just say, okay, yeah, let's just all be one, be united in the spirit and everything. But they're going to have to be very intentional about something. And he gets into that, the very next verse. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. How many times, I mean, look at the world we live, we live in. It's just filled with wars, rumors of wars. A man just gunned down eight people here in California, you know. Uh, they, then he killed himself. Uh, I saw that story today. It's just, you know, you could have been one of his workmates. Went to two different buildings, killed a bunch of people. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. If that guy was obeying the word of God, that would have never happened. But with humili humility of mind... Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do you think that man would have killed those other people if he regarded them as more important than himself? Absolutely not. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest. And that's what the world's about, right? But too many people that call themselves Christians wake up in the morning, and instead of taking up their cross as Jesus commanded, if they're going to be his believers, his followers, and denying themselves and following him, they wake up in the morning, they say, what am I going to do for myself today? How can I satisfy the desires of my flesh? And of course, they don't put it that way. They just live by the old Adamic nature. If they're non-Christians, of course, they don't have, they're not partakers of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in them. God isn't indwelling their hearts. So they, the people in the world, they live just wicked lives. But as Christians, as believers, we're called to count that old man dead, that Adamic nature. And just as Jesus has two natures as God and what? Man, God became a man, amen? When we become Christians, we have the old Adamic nature still attached to us, that old flesh. How many of you know that that flesh sticks around and you have to make sure you count him dead, amen? But then we have this new nature, we're partakers of the divine nature, that doesn't mean that we become divine. That means that God is in us and we allow him to live through us, amen? amen. And we identify now with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We live in newness of life. It's his life, Christ in us, the hope of glory, amen? The life that I now live, I now live by the power of the Son of God, amen? Through faith in the Son of God. And it's important that we count that old man dead because there's a spiritual war we're in. So he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You brothers and sisters, I don't know how many times I've tried to emphasize through the years. You know, we preach the cross. We preach the cross and we preach the cross. We talk about the cross and what Jesus did and our forgiveness all the time. Except I do have, as a pastor, a, a, a bit of a frustration with the church at large. Not with my brothers and sisters in Christ that are going forward and growing in the Lord and so forth. But my heart breaks and it hurts. When I see so many people, as I mentioned a week or so ago, that, you know, they have the bumper sticker, Christians are not perfect, just what? Just forgiven. I mentioned it says, though, that's just, that's all that's happened. For, first of all, it's not just forgiven. To be forgiven is huge. Because when you recognize the enormity of our sin and the, the depths of our depravity, and you recognize the, the magnificence of God's holiness and his, his, his righteousness, that chasm between us and him is so huge, nobody could broach it. Nobody could, nobody could fill the gap except God himself becoming a man. So we're not just forgiven, we're magnificently forgiven. 
But that's not all. We're not just forgiven or magnificently forgiven only. He makes us new creatures. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. That comes for all, that's all true believers. So those who walk around and say, well, I'm just forgiven, but they're in rebellion to God and they're not being transformed. They're not becoming like Jesus and they're not uh, seeking him in faith, but they're living a rebellious life and there's no been, been no transformation. You know, either they haven't been forgiven, that's true with many that have claimed to be Christians, or they've hardened their hearts and they've left their first love and, and they've fallen for this idea that you can that Christianity is about being forgiven and then just living your own way. But you cannot read the New Testament. You cannot go through the teachings of Jesus and settle for that. You can't read the epistles of Paul in several of his, his letters, six or seven of them. He emphasizes the transformation that takes place in our lives as Christians. So I have to encourage you. I want to encourage you guys. Genuine Christians go through transformation. And I want to stick on that for a bit, but I'm going to be dealing with that in other messages by going through a lot of scriptures another time. But I want to really poignantly look at the text before us because it'll challenge us in that regard. Uh, he says, not, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. As a Christian, you shouldn't be just thinking, what do I want to do today? You should be saying, Lord, what is your will for me today? What, how do I glorify you today? Father, you've said it's better through your son. Your son said it's better to give than to receive. How can I be a giver today of my talent, of my time, of my treasure? How can I be a blessing to others? How can I, you've come, you sent your son, Father, and Jesus came to enrich our lives spiritually, amen? Now he says, as the Father sent me, he said, I send you. He tells us to go, amen? And the Bible says in 1 John, as he is, so are we in this world. We are his hands and his feet. We represent him. And we have to get our heads around that. And man, can you, can you imagine if every Christian actually got a hold of that and, and they looked at this verse and where it says, you know, uh, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, verse three, but with humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves. What would that do for marriages, Christian marriages? If one spouse regarded the other spouse as more important when they dealt with him than themselves. It wasn't selfish and didn't have an agenda and didn't speak in such a way to pull off their own desires and lust or whatever. But we just laid our, laid our you know, weapons down and we said, you know what? We're supposed to be one in Christ, you know. And both spouses do that? Wow. And then verse four, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That means if you're married, you're saying, hmm, how can I be a blessing to my wife if you're a man? Not once in a blue moon. Oh, our anniversary is coming up. I should do something nice once a year. Oh, maybe on her birthday. Oh, if, well, if she has kids, maybe on Mother's Day. No, it's supposed to be a daily thing. Just like take up your crosses daily, amen? And we, of your children, spending time with them, loving them, teaching them, encouraging them, being an example. But man, look at verse 5. <laughs> if the text wasn't already good enough, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now keep in mind, I started this message off by saying Christians aren't just forgiven, amen? Christians are also transformed people, amen? And what are we to look like when God is done with us? Like Christ, amen? Amen? Minus the deity, amen? But God became a man. But the deity in us, God living in us, amen? And living by his power. But never becoming God. And we know this because that verse, uh, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his son, amen? That's God's will for you. The Bible says different places what God's will says all over the place. But sometimes it just says this is God's will. This is God's will for you, your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is God's will that we give thanks, right, in everything. It's another God's will. But I, I love that right there in the scripture 
where he states that what God is doing. He's working all things together for the good for those who love him. And we always look at that verse or often, oh yeah, everything that happens, God's working for the good. He's going to bless me some way. But we miss the context. For God works all things together for the good for those who love him or the call according to his purpose. For, conjunction there, who, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, what you're going through doesn't mean he's going to give you a big old giant check to put in the bank necessarily. All right? As the word faith, teachers often like to use verses like that. But that he's using all things that happen in your life as you're loving him and seeking him to make you more like Jesus, including incredible trials. And sometimes something happens, it's like, well, God loves me, so he's going to work it for the good. That means he's going to get me out of this trial. No, it can mean precisely the opposite. God loves you, but he's going to use that trial to make you more like Jesus, which is the highest good that can happen to you, by the way. Become more like Jesus. Do you realize that? We have to get our brains around that. And if we could esteem godliness, righteousness, holiness, the way God esteems it, who understands, as Jesus called them, the true riches, we would say, whatever you have for me, Father, because you are all wise, you are all knowing, you are all good, omnibenevolent, you are all powerful. And you're going to use this situation in my life, even though it's painful and it hurts, because everything belongs to you. And you use all things to your glory for those who love you, and you're making me more like Jesus. So when I see this text and it says, don't just look out for your own interests, but the interests of others. Do nothing out of you know, selfish conceit and so forth. Then verse five or verse five, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. I'm now being told that I need to have the same attitude that Jesus had. Now the Bible talks about having the mind of Christ. The Bible talks about re being renewed in our minds, amen? As a Christian, our minds ought to be being renewed. And he tells us what it means to have this same attitude that was in you, that was in Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Although he existed in the form of God. Now let's, let's make sure we understand this before we move on. For although he existed in the form of who? God. God. Jesus is who? God. Greek uh, in the form morphe. <clears throat> now, you can't exist in the form of God unless you are God. Isaiah 43.10. You are my witness, saith the Lord, my servant who I have chosen. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Ha! So the one true God says there's no God going to be formed before him or after him, there's been no God for him. It won't ever happen. There's only one true God. And that same God says a little bit later, a few verses later, in chapter 44, verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last beside me. There is no God. And we know in the book of Revelation, Jesus says over and over again in chapter 1 and in chapter 22, I am the first and last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. You know, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Right after he says, I'm the first and the last. So he is the God of Isaiah. He is Yahweh in the Old Testament. He's the one that says, before me there is no, was no God for me, neither shall there be after me. So when we read that Jesus is in the very form of God, let's understand that he's God. That's important. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also is in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who although he exists in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped held on to. It's a related, related word to the Greek word harpazo, which means to seize, to, to, to take as one's own and, and held on to. It's actually a little bit different Greek word that's only used once, but it's related. It's a cognitive harpazo. Now, he didn't have to hold on to his equality with God in some sense. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what this verse is saying and the verses after it in the church today. But it's important that we understand what it means if we're going to have the same attitude Jesus had. Amen? So we have to understand what a passage means if we're going to obey it. Now we already get the gist of it. It has something a lot to do with not being selfish. 
about not living in selfish conceit has a lot to do with not just looking at our own interests, but the interests of others, has a lot to do with, well, sacrifice. Because look what he says here. Although he existed in the form of God, so he is God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but what? Emptied himself. So when he's saying here that it's not as though he's didn't consider being God something that he should chase. It's not what he's talking about. Because he already is God. He exists in the very form of God already. Amen. We got that out of the way real, real quick. So he already exists in the form of God. But what is he saying there? But he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Canoe from, canoe, oh, to from, we get the word kenosis uh, from this and a lot of those liberal scholars in the 1800s came up with the idea that Jesus basically ceased to have the attributes of God and ceased to basically be God in many ways. Now today, you have the heretical movement called the Word Faith Movement, the prosperity teachers, the name and claim it crowd that's on very popular, a lot of popular television, their version of the gospel saying that Jesus basically became a man and ceased to be God and Many ways, if not totally. In fact, they twist this passage so much to when they're done with it, this beautiful passage which is calling us to be humble and be Christ-like is twisted to mean that he ceased to be God and we should recognize that we are God. In fact, Kenneth Copeland, I remember when we went there years ago, as a group, uh, and we were out there witnessing two people that were going in to watch this guy here in L.A. And passing out tracks that exposed him. And they had a little tiny bookstore makeshift thing outside of his books, little book racks. And I just started thumbing through those, and I saw a Philippians chapter 4. And I wanted to say, well, how's he using that verse? And or Philippians chapter 2 here, verse 4 and 5. And I didn't even get to verse 6 because I don't even know if he used it, but he used verse 5, which says, to let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And he stopped there and said, see, we're supposed to be like God in the sense that we are little gods. We're supposed to think like God. That's the attitude we're supposed to have. We're gods. I'm like, that's not what he's saying there. He's telling you to humble yourself here. And you're all saying you're twisting it to mean that we're gods. And I, my heart was, I'm like, I just went and marched back out there. I'm going to try to reach more of these people, man. This guy's teaching them lies. And he teaches that when Jesus humbled himself, that, well, listen, I'll give you some quotes. Jesus hadn't come to earth as God, he says. Catch that? It's a false teaching to say when Jesus was on earth that he wasn't God. Kenneth Copeland says, and he's one of the granddaddies of the word faith movement, Okay. Jesus had to come to earth as God. He came, he'd come as a man. He laid aside his divine power and had taken on the form of a human being with all its limitations. He goes on to say elsewhere, they, speaking of Orthodox Christians, those who follow the scripture and what the Bible teaches about Jesus soundly, he says, they mistakenly believe that Jesus was able to work wonders, to perform miracles, and to live above sin because he had divine power that we don't have. They don't realize that when Jesus came to earth, he voluntarily gave up that advantage. Talk about the advantage as being God. Living his life here, not as God, but as a man. He had no innate supernatural powers. You catch that? He had no innate supernatural powers, he says. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't limit his usage of supernatural power. But he's saying he didn't come as God. He came as a man. And he had no innate supernatural powers. Period. He goes on to write, he had no ability to perform miracles until after he, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He had no ability to perform miracles, he said. until after he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He ministered as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit. And what happens here, he reduces Jesus as to be less than divine, 
taking this passage too far. The passage is definitely talking about Jesus limiting himself for sure, but not to the point where he ceases to be God. And then he twists it to this passage to say, we're supposed to realize we're God. And that happens in all the cults for the most part. The Mormons, I've debated many Mormon who will try to tell you that, you know, Jesus is spirit brother Lucifer. He preexisted with Lucifer and there was a war in the spiritual world. He had came up with a better plan than Satan to redeem mankind. And, you know, and, you know, he's, he, you know, he had a beginning. He was birthed. He's not from everlasting to everlasting. But guess what? We can become gods. Mormonism. So that's what Satan tries to do. He tries to diminish God and exalt man. The Antichrist will blaspheme the God of heaven. The book of Revelation, chapter 13 and elsewhere. The Most High, the book of Daniel will speak blasphemous things against the Most High God. Yet the Antichrist himself will claim to be God. And here, Kenneth Copeland says, well, he says he left his powers and his attributes behind and lived as a mere man. And that we, as born-again Christians, he says, quote, just as mu- are just as much an incarnation of God as Jesus was. You catch that? He said that you and me are just as much an incarnation of God as Jesus was. In other words, he ceased to be God, but then he became an incarnation of God, and he lived a powerful life. And then since he lived this powerful life and did all these miracles, a lot of the word faith teachers like Copeland say we should be doing the same things Jesus did, walking on water and raising the dead and healing the blind, and we just need to operate in faith and use the faith that Jesus had. Gets all twisted and muddled, doesn't it? Ignoring the context of the signs of the apostles and so forth. And, you know, and I'm not a cessationist. Cessationist believing that God doesn't, God doesn't have or, you know, use believers and give them gifts today. I have no doubt about that, that he does. It's just as he wills it, you know. But we're not sensationalists either. And what is misunderstood about this text is that it's not only what he did not hold on to, it's what he took upon himself. Look at very carefully at verse 5 and following again now. Let's read a little further. Having this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a what? Bondservant. I mean, this is mind-boggling. It's the creator of the entire universe, guys. Creator of all things. And being made in the likeness of what? Men. This is God taking upon himself humanity. When he took on humanity, who was it that took upon humanity? Was it nothingness that became human? That wouldn't mean anything. That wouldn't even be Jesus. That wouldn't even be the God-man, right? Who is it, I I ask you, (coughs) excuse me, who is it that became a man? Who is it that took humanity upon himself? The Word, amen? Amen. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God, verse 2. Verse 3, and nothing came to being but by him. Says he created everything. Nothing was created but by him. Verse 14, the Word, that is God, who created everything, became what? Flesh. Someone becomes flesh. God becomes flesh. So it's not him ceasing to be God. It's what? God taking upon himself what? A human nature, amen? Was it just his appearance? He truly became human. His Father in heaven begot him by the Holy Spirit. The word actually entered in to the woman and took upon flesh and become, became a descendant of humanity, the seed of the woman, a descendant of King David, and took upon humanity. So now you have, he's God. He's still fully God, but now he's also what? He takes on a full human nature. 
That's heavy. Now, he took the form not just of a human being, but the form of a what? Bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as what? A man. He humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient to the point of death. So he didn't just become a man. He also was obedient to the point of death. And then it says, even death on a what? Cross. Which was the most brutal way you could be executed in those days. Absolutely brutal. Verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him. And he bestowed on him a name which is what? Above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Kurios from the Old Testament. Yahweh. To the glory of God the Father. So let's try to get our hearts and our brains around this for the sense of understanding who Jesus is better and what it means to become more like him on a practical level. Now, I'm emphasizing to you that when he becomes flesh, it's not nothingness becoming flesh. It's the word became flesh. The word is who? God. Amen? Was Jesus a man when he was the Word? No, he's God. And the Word becomes flesh. It's what he added to his deity was humanity. If Jesus was not omniscient any longer, omnipotent any longer, omnipresent any longer, he would then cease to have become or cease to be who? He would cease to be God. Because those are the very definitions of deity. Amen? Now, that doesn't mean... He didn't limit his usage of his powers. I can put my hand over my eyes and I, I have sight and I'm still human, amen? amen? But I have the ability to go like this and see again because God's given me that ability. He could take that away. I could plug my ears and decide not to hear. But I don't cease to be human and I don't cease to have the ability to hear. I just cease the prerogative to use that ability until I decide not, until I decide to use it again. Now, I'm not saying that's a perfect illustration, but what did he give up? We know what he took. He took on pound himself human flesh. But what did he give up? I believe it's speaking of him leaving the worship of the angels, the outward manifestation of the glory that he had all around him as God, and the worship that he received. And the beatific, just beautiful, <laughs> heavenly realm that he experienced. And that he'd go to the cross. He'd become a man that he'd also suffer the wrath that we deserved. Amen. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8 9. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he what? He became poor. He left, even though, now he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't have to grab it. He already is God. He exists in the form of God. He makes that very clear. And Paul makes that clear for a reason, so we don't misunderstand what he's saying here. But he also left all the worship in heaven. And he was born in a manger, guys. And the scriptures say he became poor that you, through his poverty, might become what? Rich. Like Jesus says to the church of Smyrna, you know, he says, I know the blasphemy of them which call themselves Jews and are not. He says to them, though, he says, fear none of those things that thou shalt suffer. Behold, I will cast you into prison and you will suffer, he says, for that you may be tried for 10 days. Right? He says, be faithful in the death and I will give you life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He that overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. But early before that, he commends him. He says, you are poor, but you are what? Rich. I don't care what you have. 
how much you have, you are rich in Jesus, amen? I don't care what I have or don't have any given day, I'm rich in Christ, man. My name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And man, that beats anything the world has to offer, amen? Jesus said, for foxes have holes and birds have nests, right? But the Son of Man has what? No place to lay his head. But the word faith teachers tell us he dressed in the best clothes and he drove what was equivalent in those days to a Rolls Royce and everything else. Not kidding. They do. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made himself, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he, the, the emphasis in the scripture is that he left his riches in heaven. He left all that worship, his, the place, and all the glory that he deserved. And he took our nature upon himself, and he took the death that we deserved on our behalf, that we might experience his spiritual riches, the riches of eternal life in heaven. And now we're going to ferret this out a bit. We're going to get a little bit deeper and deeper because we need to think these things through. In fact, uh, it's important that we do such. And the Greek word is not harpazo, but I told you it's related to harpazo. It's uh, uh, harpagmas, harpagmas. And it's only used here in the New Testament. But it does mean, it's translated, that uh, harpazo is used to grab, to snatch, to seize for oneself. It's used, as I mentioned, in the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. But it's interesting. The King James renders this, he made himself of no reputation instead of he emptied himself made himself of no reputation and certainly that was part of it amen his reputation was shot he came to his own his own received him not even though he made the world the world did not know him john chapter one right before it says the word became flesh that's verse 11 that i quoted then verse 14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us king james right says he made himself of no reputation the niv says he made himself nothing okay obviously it doesn't mean literally nothing zero he wouldn't exist if it was literal right but the idea is that it's a metaphorical idea that he left all the praise and the worship of heaven. And this is, it's important that we get our brains around this because he's telling us that we shouldn't be focusing on what we have. We should be focused on using what we have to be a blessing to others. Amen? And what it means to be a follower of Christ is to follow his example. And I know there's a lot of temptation out there. I know we live in an affluent world and a few, a, a few affluent nation, I should say. We have a lot of, at our fingertips, you know. I mean, it's just amazing how I mentioned a few weeks back, you know, that you couldn't get an icy, a drink with ice in it and just, oh, I'm going to get a cherry cola icy. I haven't had one of those in a long time. But you can't, you can't just do that. It was like a Roman emperor who would have to send somebody on horseback and several people on horseback to relay to each other to get ice to him so he could have an icy that was not nearly as good as your icy. Well, I don't know that. Might have had some really good fresh juice. But you see what I'm saying? We got so much at our fingertips. You could go to Amazon, right? You could, you know, click, click, click your mouse a couple times and before you know it, it's the next day or so, a nice package is coming because you have a certain, not just a need, maybe a certain thing you want. Wow. And it's so easy to get our eyes on ourselves. But that's such a mundane life just to fill yourself with stuff and, and forget all the people that are hurting, that need love, that need attention, that need help. So we're called to empty ourselves. And the original word, you know, that for empty yourself is, uh, the root word is canoe, K-E-N-O-O, which means to empty that's why it's translated that way sometimes. And we see it in Romans 4.14. <clears throat> it, it's called, you know, it's translated to be made void. 1 Corinthians 1.17, where it means of no effect. 1 Corinthians 9.15, where it's, it's translated make void. 2 Corinthians 9.3, uh, to be in vain, meaning something to be in vain, of no effect. And what it's basically saying, remember in Isaiah chapter 53, it says we, 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 he's, we had no stately form of majesty that we should desire him. 
He left that majesty in heaven of all the worship. Keep in mind, you guys, the holy seraphim that are before the throne in heaven, according to Isaiah chapter 6, what are they doing? They're worshiping him, right? We read in Isaiah, they're flying with two wings. With two, they're covering uh, their feet. And with two, they cover their faces. And they're seraphim. I've told you before, the word seraph means burning ones. And I believe they're covering themselves because they're in the very glory of God. And no man can stand in his glory and live. Remember Moses? I mean, even at the burning bush, God had a, showed just a little bit of his glory. This bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And Moses goes up to it, and he tells him, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. And he tells Moses to back up, take off his shoes. Because even the ground, even the dirt in which that tree is planted has become holy now. You need to back up a little bit. That was just a little bit of his glory. And Moses wanted to see him, and he goes, no man can see me and live. He'd be torched. He puts Moses behind a a cleft of a rock, and then he lets him just see his back parts or his afterglow. Otherwise, he'd be incinerated while these holy angels are beholding God. And I can prove to you that God who they're beholding right there in Isaiah chapter 6 is Jesus. It's the word, the logos, before he becomes flesh and becomes known as Jesus. Yet he becomes a man, and he takes upon himself human flesh. He made himself Nothing compared to what he was as far as he doesn't reveal himself like that now. He doesn't cease to have power, though. Remember the woman that came behind him with the issue of blood for 18 years? She's bleeding, and she just touched the hem of his garment, right? What happened? Boom. Instantly healed. He sensed that virtue came out of him. He didn't lay aside as some teachers teach. They say he laid aside his divinity. He ceased to be God. He didn't lay aside his divinity, brothers and sisters. He laid aside his privileges. The privileges of divinity. Aren't you glad he did? Aren't you glad he said, no, I love it up here. I'm just going to torture everybody, all these wicked people that are killing each other and have all these wicked thoughts and are stealing from each other. I'm just, it'll be so easy to do that. But he laid aside his privileges and didn't just consider his own interests, but considered the interest of others. And he made himself of no reputation. Even though he exists in the very form of God, he continued to hold on to his position as God as far as the worship he received and the privileges he received, but he, as God, became a man. Are you with me? We can prove this because you have to put all the scriptures together on any subject. Now, if we went to the New Testament and we read in the New Testament clear passages where, you know, Jesus said something like this when they started disputing with him whether he was the son of God or not. If he said something like this, you know, well, you know what? Before Abraham was, at one time I used to be God. I'm not anymore, but one time I'll become God again. But right now I'm not. Then we would agree with Kenneth Copeland on that point. We wouldn't agree with Kenneth Copeland on pretty much anything, but we'd have to concede that. But that's not what we read. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, what? I am. Amen? I am. Present tense, by the way. By the way, in John 8, 24, he says, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. What does it mean to be I am? Come on, guys, what does it mean to be the I am? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses is standing before the burning bush, who do I say shall set, has sent me? What, is, what does God say for the burning bush? Amen, Jim. Tell him that I am, that I am has sent you. In the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was around even before Jesus came, God became a man, it's ego, amy, ho, on. I am that I am. Ego, amy. Ego, it's where we get the word ego, E-G-O is how it's spelled in the transliteration from the Greek. Amy, E-I-M-I, I am. And Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 24, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's why this heresy from the word faith movement, which denies that Jesus was God on earth, is so serious. That's why when we talk to Mormons, 
and Jehovah Witnesses and Scientologists and religious scientists and, or religious and Christian so-called scientists, which is neither Christian nor scientific. And they all deny him being God, the God of the Bible, the, the uncreated creator of all things. That's why they're outside the pale of Christian orthodoxy. We consider them cults. Not because we're mean and not loving, but because we love the Lord God and we love his word, we love his gospel, and we love who he is so much. We have to guard that truth and earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, amen? So before Abraham was, I am. Now, yes, there is truth to the idea that he willingly suspended the usage of, of many of his powers, but he didn't cease to have those powers. It's a huge difference, amen? It's one thing to say, I'm not going to act selfishly with my powers and meet all my needs. See, Jesus could have very easily, right? He could have very easily, every time he wanted to go somewhere, could have just flicked his finger, right? Didn't have to walk, right? Could have turned the stones to bread, amen, Jimbo? Satan said, turn to you. So he could have done that. He had the power to do that. Satan knew he had the power to do that. When he was thirsty, he didn't have to go to the well in Samaria. He could have just flicked his fingers and kick, you know, made a modern lounge chair, kick back, and have angels just pour cold grape juice down his throat. And people fanned him. He didn't do that, though. He chose to live as us. And he was a man of sorrows. He didn't have to subject himself. Before the world was and he created us, he knew we were going to fall. He could chose not even to create us, knowing we were going to fall. This is the amazing God we have. It just blows me away how wonderful he is. But it's not as though he didn't have that power still. He still is the I am. This is what I want you to understand. This is what I look at when I look through the gospel. I say, well, there's something really precarious, or not really precarious is probably the wrong word, but there's something really fascinating, really interesting going on through the gospel accounts. You don't see him using his divine power to meet his own needs. You see him living as a man, suffering as a man, and relying and showing us how to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and the will of the Father, Amen. But because he relies on the power of the Holy Spirit to do his miracles, and he is born, you know, in, in a manger and being around stinky animals, no place in the end, he's showing how he's identifying as a servant. And since he relies on the power of the Holy Spirit, some then jump to the clu- conclusion where they put it with the so-called kenosis of Christ, his self-emptying, while well, he didn't really have divine power at that point. But you have to ignore a lot of text of scripture. In John chapter 2, verse 19, I mean, would it be pretty powerful if you were able to resurrect your body after it got killed? John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days. Who do you say will rise it up? I will raise it up. Amen. That was before his resurrection. Amen. Obviously, because to resurrect your body means your body's not resurrected yet. That's before his glorification in heaven. I'll raise it up. Listen to John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. So that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, like we translate power as well. And I have authority to take it up again. Wow. This commandment I have received from my Father. So, he has the power to lay his life down and the power to raise it up. He still has power. Well, why does he lay it down, his life, and rise it up? For us, amen? Because if he doesn't die for our sins, we're doomed. If he doesn't rise himself up, we're doomed, amen? So it's very important that we understand this. His knowledge, well, wait a minute. What about where it says, you know, Jesus says, nobody knows the day and the hour, not even who? Not even the son. Ah, see, he wasn't omniscient anymore. He didn't have full knowledge. I would say he didn't use his full knowledge, but he had it if he wanted to. You have knowledge right now of a lot of things that you don't use. 
Do you remember who your fifth grade teacher was? If you're getting gray like me, you might be like, wait a minute, who was that? Mrs. Chapman. Mr. Mrs. Wansley. I can remember my first grade teacher. I'm not sure if I remember my second grade teacher. But you know what? There's things you haven't thought about for years. Can you remember the most humiliating thing that happened in fifth grade or sixth grade? And if I start asking you to tell me about it, you probably could think about things you haven't thought about for years, and you could actually start remembering things you've never remembered after that year passed. But you just don't go there. Unless somebody walks out right now in tears, I can't believe I'm remembering this. I'm not trying to hurt anybody right now. Seek Jesus, he'll get you through it. Amen. But brothers and sisters, my point is, is we can go back into our memory bank and get knowledge that's there and use it. Jesus had the prerogative to know all kinds of things if he wanted to act upon them. Do you understand? But he ceased to use some of his privileges. He had power. He could have 12 legions of angels, right? Come and destroy, pilot everybody and be free. He had that power, amen? He didn't use it. Why? Because he came to suffer as a man. Are you with me? Do you understand? In fact, listen. In John 1, 28, it says, Nathaniel asked him, how do you know me? Because he called him a man without guile. He said, Jesus replied, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. The idea, I think, being communicated there, how do you see me? You know, how do you? He's probably thinking he was alone. No one was there, but Jesus ascertained that knowledge because he wanted to call his disciples for the sake of the kingdom. He prayed all night to the Father. He did rely on the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says, Lord, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. John chapter 28, verse 18. He had all power, but he didn't exercise all that power. In fact, in John 5, 17, Jesus says, my Father has been working until now. Wow. My Father has been working until now. And I have been working. Get your brain around that. John 5, 17. My father has been working in an now. Oh, he rested from his acts of creation on the seventh day. But Jesus' point there regarding the Sabbath is, even though he rested from his creative acts, doesn't mean he is not working. He's working until now. And he says, so am I. In other words, he continued to work even when he became a man in a divine way, still running the universe, still sustaining all things by the word of his power. But he wasn't using his powers to live a lush and luxurious life here on earth. Now the Gnostics, the Gnostics taught that Jesus wasn't God. In the past, they said he's just, Jesus was a man who the divine consciousness or came upon him. He wasn't the Christ, Jesus the Christ, that's why John says, whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ is Antichrist. They said, just the Christ spirit came upon him, the Logos, one of the, one of the eons, you know, came upon Jesus as a man. And we could all do the things, or we could become, or, you know, certain people could be chosen by these Logoses. Sophia was one, you know, uh, the Logos was one, you know, the Christ spirit rested upon Jesus. And really, you know, he was just an extraordinary man because this, you know, this, the Holy Spirit rested upon him. And a lot of them, like Serenthus, according to uh, Irenaeus, who got this from Polycarp, uh, came upon Jesus when he was baptized. And then it left him before he was crucified. So some taught he wasn't even crucified. Some taught, yeah, he was crucified, but this Christ spirit left him and he died as a man. Others say, you know, some of the Gnostics taught that, you know, Judas was crucified in his place. And they, you know, they, they not Judas, well, <clears throat> some, some of the Gnostics taught that, uh, Simon was, I should say, you know, crucified in his place. The one, Simon the Cyrene, that carried his cross. And not to get all of that, but I'm pointing something out to you now, is the book of Colossians was written against a hybrid of a mixture of some type of Gnosticism. We don't know all about it because there's incipient Gnosticism in the first century, which is not really detailed, other than what we know from, for instance, Irenaeus, who got it from Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, we know some of what some of the Gnostics believe from the first century. But we have what we call it incipient Gnosticism because it's not full-blown. It's not like it's got to be in the second century. 
uh, after the apostles die, which is all predicted in the New Testament before they die, even, which is really extraordinary because it's God giving us his word. But guess what? In the book of Colossians, they're saying touch not, taste not, super legalistic that you can't, things that God does not forbid, they would forbid. It was a very legalistic, there's, there's licentious Gnosticism, right? Where there's, you just do whatever you want because the creator's evil and the physical world's evil. Therefore, it doesn't matter what you do because guess what? Everything's evil anyway. So as Gnostics, you could just you know, abuse people, commit adultery and everything. It's no big deal because the evil entity, the demiurge made the world and we could just abuse ourselves physically. But then you had other Gnostics like, no, you know, they were the legalistic Gnostics the ones that were in asceticism said, no, the, the, the physical world's evil and you shouldn't even be involved in it. You shouldn't have kids, you know, you shouldn't eat meat and all these other things. And you can see new agers are the, you know, the uh, sad beneficiaries, not the right word to use there, but, you know, the stepchildren of the Gnostics and there's ascetic new agers and there's libertine new agers, right? Although now they're worshiping the creation instead of blaming it on the demiurge, right? Because nothing's sacred to you if you don't have truth. And Satan will use whatever he can to entrap people. But in, the, in Colossians, we're dealing with the, this hybrid of Gnosticism and legalism and Jewish legalism and so forth. And they're denying that Jesus is God. But go ahead and look at Colossians chapter 1. And I would not take you here if I was just showing that Jesus is God because there's so many great passages to show that Jesus is God. But I want to show you that he was God while he was on earth. Colossians chapter 1. While he was the I am. When some of the those in higher criticism or those liberal theologians of the 1800s deny that he was God or when those in the word faith movement deny that he was God while he was on earth, some of them. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Oh, man. Uh, we got to back up. It's just too good not to back up. Go to verse 15. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. <clears throat> the firstborn of all creation. The Greek word is icon there. You, you know the term icon? He's the image of the invisible God. And that's the same word that's used. You know the word, you know, when, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's, right? So his image of Caesar was on the coin. Jesus is the icon or the image of who? God. Amen? Amen. So when he's on the earth, guys, when he's on the earth... He's not just man, he is also who? He's the image of who? God. For by him all things were created. There you go. All things. In the, in the new world abomination, well, the new world translation, as the Joe Witnesses call that, it's all other things. They add the word other in there. And they put it in brackets. They, just want, they don't want you to get the understanding that this might be saying that Jesus made everything. He made all other things, they say. Other than what? Other than himself, because he was made by the Father, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. But it doesn't say all other things, amen? In fact, John chapter 1 is very clear. Nothing, nothing came into being but by him. That is the word who is God, nothing. And here, his image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, by him, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. And the Greek word is prototokos, meaning first place, like Tampa Bay Buccaneers were first of the NFL last year, uh, so that he himself will come to have first what? Place in what? Everything. The end of verse 18. Now look at verse 19 and 20. Check it out. Zone in, verse 20, 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell what? In him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him. I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, this is very important. When is it that it was pleasing to the Father that the fullness of everything would dwell in Jesus? But before we answer that question, go to chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So we understand what it means for everything, the fullness to dwell in him. Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 9, check it out. For in him all the fullness of the what? Of divinity, of deity, of the Godhead dwells in what? Bodily form. In Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's a great verse, by the way, for Jehovah's Witnesses. In Jesus, all the fullness of the deity dwells in him in bodily form. When did it dwell in him in bodily form? Chapter 1, verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to, be rec- to reconcile what? All things to himself. Meaning the fullness of the deity dwelt in him in all of its fullness before he went to the cross. Because the very next verse says that through him he could reconcile all things to himself. That's through the cross. So in other words, he's God in the flesh just as we've been emphasizing before he goes to the cross. While he's on earth before Abraham was, I am. Amen? He did not cease to be God. Now, he took upon himself human flesh, amen? We agree with that. We understand that. Yes, he did. Why? Hebrews 2, 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He became our kinsman redeemer, okay? And that means... Remember the law of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament? If somebody lost their land or they themselves became, you know, in servitude, let's say a widow, her husband died and they lost the land and so forth, his brother would marry her. The nearest kin had the right to marry her, actually the obligation And therefore, he could redeem the land and get back what they lost. And they have that beautifully illustrated in the book of Ruth, remember? Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Ruth loses her husband. Boaz steps in, buys the land, takes her as a wife. Beautiful story. He's a great, 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 great granddaddy of Jesus. God becomes a man through David's lineage, and he becomes a man that he becomes our near of kin, a human being, amen? But the kinsman redeemer had to have the power, had to have the wealth, the resources to purchase and redeem what, he, what, his, his, what had been lost by his relative. And guess what? No one had the ability to redeem his brother, the Bible says. No one could redeem his brother. The soul is costly, it says. But God became a man because we needed to be redeemed and he, want, he loved us so much, Amen? That God sent his only begotten son who, in whom the fullness of the deity would dwell in bodily form. They could give himself on the cross to redeem us. And how do we know he's God that redeemed us? Go to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Thank you. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Listen to this. It says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Talking to the elders at the church at Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of who? Shepherd the church. Whose church? The church of who? God, which he what? Which he what? Which he purchased with his own blood. Wait. Who's the subject there? Who, who purchased the church with his own blood? Who does it say? God. Jesus is God. It's another great verse for Jehovah's Witnesses. And now guess what? Jesus, when he is about to die on the cross, in John chapter 18, he makes this high priestly prayer to the Father. And listen to what he says. Verse chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that all who, whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now look at verse 5. 
Very key verse. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before what? The world was. In other words, what's he saying? I've finished, finished the work you've given me. He's got to die. He's going to say it is finished. Tell us that I paid in full. Then he says, Father, now what? Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the creation of the world. In other words, before I left the glory in heaven and became a man to die, as we've read, as the God-man in whom the fullness of the deity dwelt in bodily form. Are you with me? Then verse 24 says this, same chapter, John 17. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Because he became poor that we could become rich. So that we get to be with him. So that they may see my glory. Isn't that heavy? So that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Wow. What did that glory look like? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings and two that covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and they called one to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the glory he had with the Father in the beginning. And the foundation of the threshold trembled. And the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me. I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I, have, um, I, I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts or armies. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Wow. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me, says Isaiah. He said, go and tell this to the people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Because he says in Isaiah and other books, you're going to worship those idols, you're going to become like those idols. They can't hear, they can't. They have eyes, they can't see, they have ears, they can't hear. And because of your worship of false gods, they're handed over to judicial hardening. And guess what? This passage that I'm reading from right now is quoted in Isaiah, in, in, the, book of, in the Gospel of John, which starts out with this thesis that Jesus is God. And listen to what he says. And then we're just about done. In John chapter 12, verse 40 and 41, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor, nor turn, and I would heal them. Then he says in John chapter 12, verse 41, the very next verse, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Did he catch that? Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah said this, what we read in Isaiah 6, because he saw whose glory? Jesus' glory. So the seraphim that are flying with two wings and they're, they're the burning ones because they're in the presence of him who is a consuming fire because he's so radical and so holy. In his presence, the heavens and the earth cannot contain him. They're just flying and, and they're like, you know, almost smoldering. You get that kind of idea, right? And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. And then we read in John 12 that Isaiah said this when God, he said, send me. And then he said what we read after that. It quotes that in John 12. It says, Isaiah said this when he saw Jesus' glory. So when we read that Jesus say in John chapter 17, glorify me with the glory that I had with you in the beginning before the creation of the world, he was enthroned with the Father. We won't take the time to go there, but then when we see Jesus enthroned with the Father in Revelation chapter 5, and John's weeping and bawling like a baby because no one's found worthy on earth or under the earth or in heaven to unloose the scrolls and its seven seals so God can take dominion and ex execute his dominion. He has dominion already, but execute that dominion on the earth. What happens? The lamb stands up. The lion of the tribe of Judah, says. The lamb who'd been slain, and he takes a scroll from the hands of the father. And you know what it says? All this, all kinds of worship breaks out on earth, in heaven, and under the earth. Because even under the earth, there will be praise to Jesus. Not willingly, probably coerced. But everybody's going to confess him as Lord, we read already. Because he's a name that will be exalted. It says above every name we read in that same text. Amen. And everybody will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And guess what? It says 
they worshiped him that sits on the throne and they worshiped the lamb. He's being worshiped as God in Revelation chapter five, which is also written by the apostle John, where we see him praying, glorify him with the glory that I had with you in the beginning before the world was, amen? Which is the same book in chapter 12, verse 41, that says Isaiah said this when he saw Jesus' glory, when he saw him being worshiped as holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And guess what they're saying in their worship song, Revelation four and five? Holy, 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 it's the Lord God Almighty. Same thing. <laughs> it's just amazing. It fits together like a hand in a glove. Is Jesus God, yes or no? When Jesus came to the earth, did he cease to be God? He was still the great what? The great I am, amen? He simply left his glory in all the worship. Now, brothers and sisters, we don't want to just understand that theological truth. We want to say, wow, he is so radical. He is so amazing that he subjected himself to death and humanity, becoming a servant, even the death on the cross. Why? To save us. And if anyone had the right to just kick back, it was him. Yet God now commands us, through Paul, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the very form of God, existed in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but he took the form of a servant, amen, and became a man and died, even the death on the cross for us. And we're supposed to have that mentality to die to ourselves and not just consider our own interests, but the interests of others and be a blessing one to another, amen, and become more and more Christ-like and more and more like Jesus, amen. Brothers and sisters, can that be your prayer? Will that be our prayer? Father, make me more like Jesus. Help me be more of a servant. Help me to be the man and the wo- or the woman that you called me to be, amen? And help us be a blessing one to another. Help me not just consider my own interests, Lord, but help me consider the interests of others. I encourage you to pray the scripture. It's one of the ways I love to read the scriptures. Pray God's commands. I see a command, don't just say, yeah, that's good. But say, God, do that in my life. Help me to love you more. Help me to be a better servant. None of us are, are perfect yet, Amen. But Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Amen? We're supposed to strive toward that. Not as a works trip so God will accept us. We do it because we've already been accepted. Amen? Because he's already saved us by his grace and he's so good. But we realize, wow, I have such a debt to you I could never pay. But you know what? Let me show you how thankful I am that you love me and that you care for me and that you shed your blood for me, Lord Jesus. Amen? And help me be as you have been. And follow that example that I might lead other people to you, that they might share in the riches of your eternal kingdom that I have by your grace. Amen. Can we all please stand? Father God, we thank you so much.